Father in heaven, I want to thank you for an early morning, a very, very, very early morning. But Father, the ideas that you gave, the prayer that you answered, Father, you have just come through in such a big way for our family, and you've come through in such a big way for the human race. So Father, we just want to give you praise right now. And Lord, especially as we come into this chapter, what a great chapter in the wake, in the flow of just coming out of Easter weekend. Father, he is risen. He is not here. The stone was moved. And all of that portended and anticipated and announced good news, not just for one class, one race, one religion of people. It, it portends good news for the world. And Father, as we talk today about the breaking down of those barriers, those walls of partition, may you speak to us in a powerful way that will motivate us to move and to be active in reaching out, especially to those around us that are the least likely to hear the good news. And uh, be with us now is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, welcome everyone to DA with DA. Sorry, I'm a little short on the good mornings this morning, not because I don't wanna say good morning to everyone, but because I'm a little short on time this morning. So here we go. We are going to read from Matthew chapter 15, which is where we were yesterday. Same chapter, Matthew chapter 15, and beginning in verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. And I'm just gonna read this whole section here. It says, then Jesus went out from there, there being Capernaum. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So that's mostly north, but also a little west. So north by northwest. Um, and behold, a woman of Canaan, this is very important. A woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Interesting. My daughter is severely demon possessed, but he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him saying, send her away. She won't leave us alone. Oh, this is a great story. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, help me. Woo. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. What? What? What's going on here? Verse 27. And she said, yes, Lord, I know. Even, but even the little dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Okay, that's the Matthew 15 version. Now let's read the Mark 7. A little longer in Mark, actually, unusually. Mark chapter 7, and we'll start it in verse 24. Mark 7, 24. Here we go. From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon and entered a house and wanted no one to know it but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him and she came and fell at his feet. Ah, we've seen that several times recently. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. 
And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. All right, this has got to be one of the most unusual stories in all the Gospels. Right, like this story on so many levels is is a little unusual, right? First of all, Jesus traveling all the way north, northwest to Phoenicia, that's unusual. Now he has traveled, as we've already noted, to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is where Decapolis was. It is a less Jewish area. There were still, of course, some Jews there, but it was largely, you know, Greco-Roman and not as much of a Jewish influence as there was in Judea and in Galilee. So it's a little unusual that Jesus is traveling to this place. This is the first time that we have record of him traveling to this place in the Gospels. It doesn't mean that he didn't also travel there at other times. It would be a little hard to find where that would be squeezed in, but... He's traveling to a slightly unusual place, number one. Number two, he interacts with this woman in a way that sh- shocks us a little bit. We're like, what? That, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that we've become accustomed to. And there are reasons for it, strategic reasons. And the, the narrative is a little bare bones, right? It does require some significant reading, thinking, rereading. I just sort of turn my computer off there making a bunch of noise. It, it requires a little bit of insight, right? To, to try and figure out why did Jesus relate to this woman in this way? What was accomplished and what was the larger narrative that was taking place? And I have to say that in our chapter today, chapter 42, barriers broken down, Ellen White does a masterful job of describing exactly what's going on in this chapter. It's incredible And I can't wait. I cannot wait. Okay, the first thing I want to say is, by way of getting into this chapter, is I follow a person on Twitter who's a fascinating person. His name is Beckett Cook. Beckett Cook. And uh, a really fascinating person. And if I had time, I would tell you more about him. But anyway, just yesterday, in the wake of Easter weekend, Beckett Cook tweeted this. And I thought, I actually retweeted it. It's so beautiful. And I just so agree with it. I'm so resonant with it. And it's the perfect launching pad to talk about barriers being broken down. This is what he tweeted. There is nothing better in the world than to be loved by Jesus. There is nothing better in the world than to be loved by Jesus. Can somebody say amen? I mean, so well said, so well communicated, and so spot on. Nothing better in the world than to be loved by Jesus. Okay, that feeling, that sensation, that satisfaction, that joy is not meant for only a few people, a privileged cultural or social or religious or economic class. That sensation, that feeling of knowing that you are one of God's beloved daughters, one of God's beloved sons is meant for everybody. There's no greater feeling in the world There's nothing better in the world than to be loved by Jesus. Okay, so here we go. I can't show you my markings here because I've already written my word down, but here we go. Chapter 42, paragraph one, barriers broken down. I'm half tempted to read the entire chapter. I mean, it's so good. It is so, so good. So well communicated. Such a beautiful and mysterious portrait of Jesus. And most importantly, such a beautiful truth. I mean, mm, I'm geeked about it. Here we go. Uh, Beginning in 
Sentence one, paragraph one. It says, after the encounter with the Pharisees that he just had the day before, with the spies and the conflict that had taken place, over ceremonial purification, contamination, remember? Okay, get that in your mind. Jesus withdrew from Capernaum. Now, this is already, just that line right there is a bit of a shift because remember that Capernaum has been presented to us in all four of the Gospels as a place that Jesus has great reception, good experiences, lots of miracles. There's a high level of enthusiasm. But even now, as we've mentioned, the tide is turning, right? After Jesus gave his speech in the synagogue described in John 6, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, there are some misgivings. There are some like, hey, this guy is this guy's not who we thought he was. And a lot of people, remember, took his announcement there, his hard-to-hear words in the synagogue in Capernaum as a frank admission that he wasn't the Messiah. And so Capernaum, which used to be a place of happiness and joy and a place where he just felt kind of at home, like a home away from home. It's actually not very far away from his actual home of Nazareth, which felt nothing like a home. We've talked about that. But even now you get the sense in that line, Jesus withdrew from Capernaum. He needed even to leave here. And rather than going south into Judea, what does he do? He goes north, slightly northwest into Phoenicia, right? Like into the heathen lands where there were still, yes, some Jews, but not nearly as many. It was considered heathen country, okay? So get this in your mind. Things are shifting. There's a, there's a, a, a sense that, a change is in the air. The tide has just shifted from in to out. After the encounter with the Pharisees, Jesus withdrew from Capernaum and crossing Galilee, went to the hill country on the borders of Phoenicia. Looking westward, he could see spread out upon the plain below the ancient cities of Tyre and Sidon with their heathen temples, their magnificent palaces and markets of trade and the harbors filled with shipping. Beyond, this is so cool. I love what she does here. She gives a little setup for where the whole chapter is going. Beyond the cities of Tyre and Sidon was the blue expanse of the Mediterranean over which the messengers of the gospel were to bear its glad news to the centers of the world's great empire. See what she did there? Fascinating. So she, she puts Jesus, you know, she's, Jesus is on a little mountain, a little rise. He's looking out and he sees Tyre and Sidon to the north and the west. And then beyond that, and if you've ever seen the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean is a uniquely wonderful color of blue, right? It's just this azure sapphire blue and it stretches out to the horizon. And she uses this beautiful illustration to say that beyond its, its expanse, uh, the messengers of the gospel were to bear its glad news to the centers of the world's great empire. This is a setup for what's coming in the chapter and it's a very good setup. She continues, the work before him, oh, she says, but the time was not yet. The work before him was to prepare his disciples for their mission. In coming to this region, he hoped to find the retirement that he had failed to secure in Bethsaida, yet this was not his only purpose in taking this journey. So here again, as we've noted before, Jesus is pressed, very pressed. In fact, the Markan account says that when he actually gets into Phoenicia, he went into a house and he said, hey, if if, if we could just not let the word get out that Jesus of Nazareth is here, that'd be great. I just need a little alone time. I need a little rest. I need a little retirement. So even in Phoenicia, his fame was beginning to spread out on the periphery of what was largely the, the Jewish area of Judea and Galilee. He just needs a little rest. And she says, you know, what he was looking for in the eastern shore of Galilee, he's now looking for in the northern hill country 
of Phoenicia. Second paragraph. Behold, a woman of Canaan, now this is important, came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. She's quoting Matthew chapter 15, verse 22 here. Now the importance of this is, for her to say son of David is fascinating and already alerts us to the fact that she has some level of biblical literacy or awareness, right? Because son of David is a distinctly Jewish term built around, of course, the second king of Israel, second Solomon, David. The Davidic reign was considered, you know, the, sort of the Davidic and the Solomonic reigns were considered by Jews as the height of Israel's national pride and, you know, the, the climax, the zenith of their national pride. And the hope and the anticipation was that a king would return that would have the charisma of Saul, the warrior-like spirit, but also God-like spirit of David, and the wisdom of Solomon. And so the son of David thing alerts you to the fact that, yes, she's a Canaanite, but she has some awareness of Jewish religion, Jewish faith. And, and in today's, today's day, Janet, in today's day and age, this is not, this, this isn't very striking, but in ancient times, it was quite striking because deities tended to be very regional, very parochial, and people kind of kept to themselves, this us-them world of, of the people on this side of the river or that side of the river, this side of the mountain or that side of the mountain. People were different. Languages were different. Dialects were different. Cultures were different. And gods were different. Patron deities were different. And so, to familiarize yourself with someone of another nation was a little unusual. Remember the woman at the well, right? When she's speaking to Jesus, she says, how is it that you being a Jew are asking something from me, a Samaritan? Because almost like the elevator thing, you get in the elevator and, or sometimes on a plane, you know, if you sit next to someone, they put their headsets right on. It's always so weird to me that like, you're in a proximate space, like a very close space with another person that is probably an interesting person, a cool person, a person that would be fun to have a conversation with, but you just kind of pretend like they're not there. You know, these sort of socially awkward moments that modernity gives us. But in the ancient world, you had whole cultures that didn't intermingle more than was absolutely necessary. So for this woman to have some conversancy, some awareness of Jewish history and the Jewish faith and the Jewish Messiah is already remarkable. She cries out, son of David. It lets you know that she has some prior familiarity and this be begins to be the, the beginnings, the burgeoning of hope in her heart, right? She has heard reports. Word has gotten even to Phoenicia and one of the points that Ellen White makes in this chapter, and she makes it over and over again, as do the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, she was persistent. She would not leave Jesus and the disciples alone. She pushed, she pushed, she pressed, she pressed, she was urgent. She refused to be turned away. Okay, that's one of the big takeaways in the story. So let's go back here. It says, the people of this district were of the old Canaanite race. Okay, old Canaanite race, i.e., the people that occupied the land more than a thousand years before when God had said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land and your descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. She's a descendant of the race that in the minds of the Jews were the very ones that God was driving out before the emergent Israelite nation, right? So they were hated. They were despised. In the minds of these Jewish people, these people should have all been exterminated years ago. Like, like they didn't even really have a right to exist. 
So the old Canaanite race, now this is interesting. They were idolaters and they were despised and hated by the Jews, again, for a history going back more than a millennium, way, way back. And it says, to this class belonged the woman who now came to Jesus. Just one quick word. We have already, in Matthew's gospel account, been introduced to a woman from the old Canaanite race. And I just wonder, I'm just going to give you a moment here to see if anyone knows who that is. In the gospel of Matthew, I don't think we've talked about it, but in the gospel of Matthew, we have already met a woman from the old country of Canaan. And I'll give you a little hint. We have been introduced to her in a positive way. Does anyone know who this is? I'll give you just a moment. Looking here, I've got the Instagram lag. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Somebody says persistence, that's good. Nobody's responding. Samaria, good guess, Deb, good guess. No, that's not right. Um, Somebody's asking, Ruth, good guess. At the well, no, good guess. No, woman at the well, a lot of people guessing. There we go, Julia Claiborne, you've got it. You've got it. Rahab, Rahab. Remember the story of Rahab in the city of Jericho? And you're saying, what? That's in the book of Joshua. Rahab has not yet occurred in the New Testament, David. You're confused. That's the Old Testament. Oh, contraire, mon frere, listen to this. Listen to this. I'm going back all the way to the very first book, first chapter of the New Testament. That is to say, Matthew chapter one, and I'm gonna just start reading in verse one. The book of the genealogy, the beginning, the family tree, of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Ah, there we go. That's the very thing that the Syrophoenician woman cries out. The son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. That's verse two. Now verse three. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nation. Nation begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Beloved. By Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Okay, there is every good reason to believe that the Rahab spoken of here is none other than the very Rahab who occupied that position of unique faithfulness in the ancient city of Jericho. And astonishingly, she turns up in the genealogy of the Messiah, positively. Fascinating. In fact, of course, later uh, she'll be referred to positively in the book of Hebrews. And so this is not the first Canaanite woman from the old Canaanite race that we've been exposed to in the Gospels in a positive way. Okay, so listen to this. She came to Jesus. And that's the answer right there, beloved. Remember Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of you. Not all of you Jews, not all of you pious Jews, come to me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going. She was a heathen and therefore was excluded from the advantages that the Jews daily enjoyed. There were many Jews living among the Phoenicians and news of Christ's work had penetrated to this region. It must have. It had to have because she's just cried out, Jesus, son of David. So the report of some nature has gotten to this area of Phoenicia and she is aware 
the one that many of the Jews are referring to as Messiah and reports had come about the healings, about the miracles, about the wonders. And so she, as soon as she finds out where Jesus is, she locates him and she will not leave him alone. She will not leave him alone. And again, that's one of the great takeaways here from the story. So she's got news of this Messiah figure. Some of the people had listened to his words and had witnessed his wonderful works. This woman had heard of the prophet who it was reported healed all manner of diseases. Now listen, I love this sentence. As she heard of his power, hope sprang up in her heart. Okay, I want you just to hear those two phrases. As she heard, hope sprung up. As she heard about Jesus, hope sprung up. And you know what occurred to me? And I actually wrote that right here in the margin. That's basically everyone's story. I mean, is there any person that has come to Jesus that that's not their story, right? If you just summarized my story, summarized your story, summarized anyone who's ever come to Jesus, wouldn't their story be neatly, nicely summarized in those two phrases? As she heard, hope sprang up. As he heard, hope sprang up. I can tell you in my own experience, that summarizes my experience. I began to hear reports about Jesus. People were testifying to me about what forgiveness felt like and who Jesus was and what the meaning of the resurrection was and what it meant for him to be the son of God. And I was a open-minded but fairly skeptical punk rock kid. But as I was hearing about Jesus, it wasn't just the external, this is important, it wasn't just the external witnessing that was being given to me by friends and and a person that lived in my neighborhood, a guy by the name of Tim and his girlfriend, Tanya, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me inside. The Holy Spirit was speaking to me inside and saying, the things that you're hearing about Jesus are true. We so often forget this. When we talk to people about Jesus, when we witness, we are only cooperating with and corroborating what the Holy Spirit is already saying internally to that person. Right? So, so God is working from the inside and from the outside. He works from the outside by his church, right? Because we can't get into the hearts and minds of people and discern the inner motivations like God can. So the church witnesses from the outside, we give our good testimony, as she calls it, the, the glad news of God's goodness in our own experience. But the more important thing that's happening, that's not unimportant, but the more important thing that's happening is that internal to these people, internal to every single human being, God's spirit is saying, When the report comes about the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the Holy Spirit speaks internally to that person and says, what this person is saying to you is true. That's everybody's story. As she heard, hope sprang up. As he heard, hope sprang up. That's everyone's story. That's everyone's story. I love that. It continues, inspired by a mother's love, she determined, and and this language is used again and again. I just underlined a few of them. She determined, she determined, resolute purpose, her only hope. She is not going to be denied. She is persistent. And I don't know how this is the case, but in the very next paragraph, Ellen White just says it like this. She just says, Christ knew this woman's situation. This is key. I don't know how he knew. It could have been that God revealed it to him in a dream or in a vision or in a prayer session. It could have been that a flash of divinity revealed it to him. I think it's more likely that the father had revealed it to him because he was occupying the place and position of 
of fully, thoroughly, completely human, but he knew this woman's situation. Now watch. That makes the rest of the story make sense, by the way. Uh, she says one more sentence here, maybe two. He knew that she was longing to see him and he placed himself in her path by ministering to her sorrow, he could give a living representation of the lesson he designed to teach. Okay, the importance of this cannot be overstated. Okay, this isn't just some random woman that's walking up and Jesus is being dismissive of her or indifferent or apathetic toward her. That's not what's happening. By the revelation of God to Jesus, he somehow knows this woman's circumstance and situation. He knows about the daughter. He knows about her character. He knows about her persistence. In the same kind of way, remember, God has already done this uh, revelation with the woman at the well. You have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. Okay, so, so Jesus has this ability through the revelation of the Spirit, total dependence upon his Father being right in the center of his will, to know things in a supernatural way. By the way, I don't want to sound weird or strange here, but I have had the same experience, and probably you have too. I have at times just had a sense that is a person that you need to talk to. And I've gone over and spoke to them and it was just like a total God thing, right? Like God didn't reveal to me their social security number and their address and their you know, internet passwords. But, but I just through, I guess, the revelation of God's spirit has, as a minister of the gospel, as a preacher, as a pastor, on many occasions, God has revealed things to me and I have gone into situations somehow knowing or intuiting things that I really had no right to know. But I knew them. And I knew that I knew them. Okay? God has even, on a couple occasions, and I'm laying no claim at all to prophetic status here, but God even has, on a couple occasions, has revealed things to me in dreams about people. And I've called them up and said, hey, bro, I had a dream about you. This hasn't happened many times, like three and this is what I dreamed, and maybe it's nothing, maybe I just ate too much you know, food before I went to bed, but is there anything to this? And silence on the other end of the line, and a dear friend is saying to me, crying, I can hear him crying and saying, this is the voice of God, this is what I've been going through. And I'm like, whoa, I had no way of knowing that, but it was revealed to me, so why not Jesus? So what makes this so important is, is that Jesus knows in advance the woman's condition, but the disciples do not. He knows her circumstance, he knows her situation, he knows where she's gonna be, and Jesus, as with the woman at the well, there's a lot of similarities here, places himself in her path. Places himself in her path. And you have to hear everything that Jesus is going to say in the rest of this story in the wake of the fact that he knows. Right, this is, there's no risk here because he knows the woman's situation and circumstance. He knows her character. He knows her persistence. He knows her need. And he therefore knows when he relates to, to her in the way that he's going to, which is actually a way that will mirror the intolerance and prejudice of his disciples, he's going to use this as an opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson. That's the story, okay? Now let's continue to go through this. Um, now, this is so interesting. He could give a living representation of the lesson he designed to teach. I'm still on page 465 of the Types and Symbols. 400, hear that, 400. That's how far we've come. 400 of the original. For this he had brought his disciples into this region. He desired them to see the ignorance existing in the cities and villages so close to the land of Israel. The people who had been given every opportunity to understand the truth 
were without a knowledge of the needs of those around them. No effort was made to help souls in darkness. All I wrote in the margin here was, whoa, mercy. Okay, you see what Jesus is doing here? He's taking the disciples on a field trip to purposefully open their minds and their eyes to see something which in their insularity they would not see and not care about. Look at how close we are to Galilee. Look at how close we are to the synagogues in Capernaum and Nazareth and other places. We're not even very far from Jerusalem. And look at the ignorance here. Look at the intolerance here. Look at the needs here. And this should have, and eventually did, should have triggered in the mind of the disciples, wow, Jesus is too good of news to be keeping to ourselves. Like, why should Jesus only be healing Jewish people? Why should Jesus only be ministering to people that, I mean, do Syrophoenician mothers not love their children? Do Syrophoenician lepers also not have great pain in their heart of hearts that they want fixed? Do Syrophoenician people who are feeling hopeless and despair not also need access to a Messiah? And this is supposed to create within the minds of the Jews, the disciples, an unease, a like, wow, there are great needs here. By the way, by the way, this is not unlike what people from first world countries like America and Australia and England and other places in Europe do when they take their church or their group to a third world country for a mission trip, right? They go to Haiti or they go to one of the impoverished countries of Africa or they go to Southeast Asia or they go to China or they go to Mongolia or they go to India. Why? These, are, these places are a long ways away. It's super inefficient to load up a bunch of people and raise all the money and go there. Well, because what happens is when people like us that experience first world problems go and see that there are people in actual real needs, not like, hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? And uh, they gave me the wrong coffee at Starbucks. I don't drink coffee, but that is a first world problem. Um, or I didn't get the first class upgrade on my flight. Amazon Prime is two days late. My, my package didn't come in. Like, these are all jokes. These are not real problems. Real problems exist out there. And when we take our young people or our churches or members of our community into places, especially if they've not traveled much, and they see these problems, they're like, whoa, whoa, there are real needs here. I'll give you a good example. A big part of my conversion to Christ, I don't often tell this part of the story, but I, I've told it occasionally, so maybe you've heard this. A big part of my personal conversion to Christ, I was converted at the age of 23, almost 24 years old. At the age of 21, I got a job at a, not a vocational, a residential setting working for a place called the Black Hills Workshop. The Black Hills Workshop. And the Black Hills Workshop was basically a vocational and residential center for people with all kinds of developmental disabilities. So everything from Down syndrome to autism to um, brain injuries to um, fetal alcohol syndrome. And we had, you know, very high functioning people that we uh, took care of, you know, moderate level and very low functioning. And there were people that worked in the vocational areas. I didn't. I worked in residential. So I, part of my job for two and a half years was living with these people. I worked in three homes primarily. 
one very low functioning home, another home with low and moderate function, functioning, and then I also uh, helped some people that were in much higher functioning homes. Let me just tell you this. I thought the most important thing in the world when I took that job was becoming a professional skateboarder. That was my dream. You know, I wanted to be the best skateboarder I could be. I was like, yeah, skateboarding is it. Skateboarding is the thing. And I was like, it was basically my idol from the age of about 12 to around 22. So, or 11 to 22, so for more than a decade. But let me tell you this, when I, st when I went into those homes, and these homes were like in neighborhoods that I knew. I had friends that lived in some of these neighborhoods and I would now go to these homes and help these people in the most basic tasks. I mean, some of them had functioning, you know, levels of like a one or a two-year-old and some of them like a five or a six-year-old and some of them, you know, like someone in their, you know, maybe early teens. Friends, I tell you, it was a wake-up call for me. I was like, my life is super selfish. My life is super leisurely. And the things that I think are the most important things are not the most important things. And that awakening, that, that two and a half years of working in that setting literally changed my life in all the right ways. And I believe that it softened my heart and softened the soil to prepare me for when I would be exposed to the gospel. I was not just a punk rock kid that cared only about skateboarding and lived in my own little insular world. I had been exposed to people with real pain and real hurts and, and needs and circumstances that I couldn't have dreamed of. Okay, this is similar to what we do on mission trips and it's similar to what's happening here. Jesus takes the disciples on a little mission trip, on a little field trip, and they see things and they're like, wow, look at this. This is so close, but there's so much ignorance here, so much darkness here, so many needs here. Now again, Remember, Jesus knows. He knows how the situation is going to go. He knows this woman and he knows her persistence. Just want to read a little bit more there. The, part, um, the people who had been given every opportunity. Okay, no effort. Okay, here we are. The partition wall which Jewish pride had erected shut even the disciples from sympathy with the heathen world. But these barriers were to be broken down. And thus the title of the chapter is Barriers Broken Down. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. She says, even the disciples, even the disciples. Now, let's think about this. The disciples at this point have been with Jesus at least a year, right? We, we could sit down and figure out the exact chronology, but it's probably somewhere between about a year and a year and a half that they've been with Jesus. Now, let's think this through. If even the disciples are incapacitated from seeing these people as human beings made in the image of God and valuable, uniquely and wonderfully valuable, if the disciples, after like 18 months of exposure to Jesus and all of the things that Jesus has done completely wrong by first century standards, right? Affirming a Roman centurion, you know, speaking favorably, extremely favorably to a Samaritan woman at a well, spending two days with the Samaritans, um, attending a tax collector's party, hanging out with the outcasts. I mean, they have seen Jesus again and again and again and again and again break these social protocols. Now, here's the point. If even the disciples, she says it, she says, even the disciples were shut away from sympathy with the heathen. Well, if after 18 months of exposure to Jesus, they were still in this condition, what, was, what condition was the rest of Israel in? That's my point. What condition was the rest of Israel in? If even after 18 months of exposure, give or take, 
to Messiah had not yet broken down those walls. In fact, those walls are going to be a long time coming down. A long, long time coming down. Because when we get to the book of Acts, the great tectonic shaping narrative in the book of Acts is how Jewish do these Gentile believers have to become in order to be believers in the Jewish Messiah? How Jewish do they have to become? And the answer that the church eventually gives is not at all. They don't have to become Jewish, right? In the sort of proprietary sense of Jewishness. And, uh, but that's, that's years away. That is years away still of the, that's more than a year away of the incarnation. That's a resurrection away. That's a crucifixion away. That's, man, just think about the level of national intolerance and prejudice and hatred. Okay, so let's get into the story here. Then she says, Christ did not immediately reply to the woman's request. He received this representative as a, as of a despised race as the Jews would have done. In this, he designed, key word, he designed, he knew what he was doing. This was according to a plan. He designed, he planned, he knew. In fact, this whole paragraph is the key. This is the paragraph that begins, Christ did not immediately reply. This whole paragraph is the key, the hermeneutical key to understand what's happening in Matthew 7, Matthew 15 and Mark 7. I'll read it again. Christ did not immediately reply to the woman's request. He received this representative of a despised race as the Jews would have done. In this, he designed that his disciples should be impressed with the cold and heartless manner in which the Jews would treat such a case. Fascinating. As evinced by his reception of the woman and the compassionate manner in which he would have them deal with such distress as manifested by his subsequent granting of her petition. They're supposed to see a stark contrast between his initial relationship with her of indifference and apathy and walking by and then even the little you know, dialogue that they have, the sort of, you know, back and forth about the table and the little dogs and the children, and then eventually granting her request. There's like this evolution of how Jesus is relating to her. And this was designed, it was planned to impress the disciples. Now, in the very next page, I can show you this. I don't know if you can see all of that yellow, 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 all of that yellow that you see there I've purposefully highlighted words like this, as if, supposed, appeared, implied, apparently, virtually. Ellen White is falling over herself here grammatically, linguistically, to let you know that the way that Jesus was seemingly, apparently, um, virtually relating to her was not what was in his heart. It was designed to teach a lesson to the disciples. They were supposed to sort of do the, the rubberneck thing when they heard Jesus talk that way, like, well, that's not how Jesus normally talks. And this was designed to give them a little mirror to hold up to them the condition of their own hearts. Because when he then later has the back and forth dialogue with her and then grants her request and says, woman, great is your faith, the disciples were completely mystified. He then, on subsequent teaching, would have explained to them the point that he's been doing all along. In other words, this isn't just some anomalous story that's just plopped down here in the middle of Matthew and Mark. This story is the outworking of the way that Jesus has already been doing ministry. And we've already mentioned that with regard to the tax collectors and the sinners and the outcasts and the Samaritans and the Roman centurions. This is the logical outworking, but she does make a good point. 
466 of the Types and Symbols 401 of the original. She makes this really great point. She says, is this the place where, yes. Is this where she says it? Hmm, maybe it's not. I'll see if I can find it. But she makes this point, I can't find where it's at, but she basically says, yeah, the Samaritans had some relationship with the Jews. They had some ancient ties with the Jews. Basically, the tribes of Israel had intermarried with the surrounding nations, and that became the Samaritans. And the Roman centurion, you might remember, was very kind and generous to the Jews and even built them a synagogue. And so you could kind of say, well, yeah, I guess we can make an exception for them. But what Jesus is showing is they're not the exception, they're the rule. That's what he's doing here. Because this woman has nothing to recommend her. She's a Syrophoenician woman of the old Canaanite race. And yet, Lord, Lord, son of David, son of David, she shows her biblical conversancy and awareness of Messiah. Um, she urged her case. Oh, let me say no there. Okay. She urged her case, and I love this point. She throws her feet. One, I think the Mark account says the, I think the Mark account simply, the Matthew account says that she worshiped him, and then the, the Mark account is more specific, that she threw herself at, her, at his feet. Now, you might remember, we've already seen this two times in the very recent past. The woman who had the issue of blood cast herself at the feet of Jesus, and Jairus the leader of the synagogue in Capernaum cast his feet at the feet, cast himself at the feet of Jesus. And I want to say this, beloved. By the way, so did Peter. Remember when all the fish came into the boat, he threw himself at the feet of Jesus and said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Here's the point. I want you to hear this. Friends, 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 friends. If you ever need a, a an in case of emergency break glass, okay, you ever need one of those spiritually? You ever, ever need one of those psychologically? You ever need one of those emotionally? Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus because you will be heard and you will be saved and you will be taken care of. Maybe not exactly in the way that you're hoping and expecting and anticipating. I mean, maybe not. Maybe, but maybe not. But, but you will be taken care of and you will be saved. There is no better place to be than at the feet of Jesus. Throw yourself at the feet of Jesus, my friends. I'm gonna quote Beckett Cook again. There is nothing better in the world than to be loved by Jesus. Are you despairing? Are you discouraged? Are you downcast? Are you confused? Do you feel betrayed? There's no better place to be with that emotional landscape and others like them, others like that, than at the feet of Jesus. She throws herself at the feet of Jesus. This woman is not going to be denied. And she knows it. He knows it, excuse me. Jesus knows it. So she, she urges, she throws herself down at the feet of Jesus. And um, then there's this, this interaction, this conversation. Let's see, where do I want to pick this up here? That same page, page 466, 401 of the original, I like the paragraph that begins, Jesus had just departed Jesus had just departed, and Ellen White does a masterful job here of making the contrast between the experience in Capernaum and the experience with this woman. Now listen to this contrast. It's incredible. Jesus had just departed from his field of labor because the scribes and the Pharisees were seeking to take his life, right? 
They murmured and complained. They manifested unbelief. By the way, I don't know if you've been noticing this, but unbelief is a word that's been showing up quite a little bit in our last, oh, half a dozen chapters. Very interesting. Um, Unbelief, unbelief. So the Jews have manifested unbelief and bitterness and refused the salvation so freely offered to them, okay? So Christ here meets one of of an unfortunate and despised race not despised by God, but, but, but despised by the Jews, that has not been favored with the light of God's word, yet she yields at once to the divine influence of Christ and has implicit faith in his ability to grant the favor she asks. She begs for the crumbs that fall from the master's table. If she may have the privilege of a dog, she is willing to be regarded as a dog. Ooh, man. She has no national or religious prejudice or pride to influence her course And she immediately acknowledges Jesus as the Redeemer and as being able to do all that she asks of him. And I just wrote here in the margin, she was not prejudiced. Now let's just think that through here for a moment. The Jews of Jesus' day, and we've noted already how often the word prejudice and bigotry are used in the Desire of Ages. Another word that occurs in this chapter, a very similar word, is the word intolerance. It occurs on the next page, intolerance. We've already noted that, we've been over that. But here's the point. Think about this. In the same way that Jairus in Capernaum had to humble himself mightily to come to Jesus and ask for help because his daughter was gravely ill, think of the humility and of the open-mindedness that this woman must have had. It gives us an insight into her character to go not to her own gods, which by the way, Ellen White says that she had gone to the heathen gods and nothing had happened because they're just made of wood or of stone or of metal. They're not real. So think of the humility and of the open-mindedness that she must have had to, number one, have known something about Jesus, to have referred to him as the son of David. Number two, to have called him Lord. Number three, to have cast herself at his feet. Number four, knowing all along that he's a religious Jewish man and 1,000 out of 1,000 religious Jewish men would despise her and not give her the time of day. And if she cast herself at their feet, they would be just as likely to step on her as to help her. So this tells us, friends, that she is not prejudiced. She doesn't have that intolerance and bigotry that those that were God's covenant people, God's chosen people had. Remarkable. And the point here is, This is very similar to Jesus' affirmation of the Roman centurion. I've not seen faith like this, he said, in the whole of Israel. Friends, God is sending the message again and again that very often people that are out there, those icky people, are in their heart of hearts and in their attitude and in their actions more Christian, more godly, more pious than the people who are supposed to be God's people. And by the way, the, the, the backdrop to all of this is, and if you missed it, then you missed it, you need to go back and read it, is, is the church similarly prejudiced? Is the church similarly disconnecting itself from needs that are right around it that we're completely ignorant of? That's the subtext to what's going on here, right? Like she's not just making these points historically, she's making them practically, and she does so with a surgical precision, We're supposed to say, whoa, wait a minute. Maybe all the people that we think are out are not out. Maybe the tax collectors are not out. Maybe the Samaritans are not out. Maybe the Romans are not out. Maybe the centurions are not out. Maybe even the Syrophoenicians are not out. 
Whoa, Jesus has already said that the, the sons of the wicked one, or excuse me, he's already said that the, the, uh, the sons of the, I'm trying to think when he affirms the Roman centurion, he says, oh, that the, the children of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness and many will come from the east and the west and will sit down what? Remember this? With Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a nod, an unambiguous, unmistakable nod to the Abrahamic promise. In you, Abraham, all, all, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Mm, I love the fact that she evidences that she did not share in this national, religious, cultural pride and prejudice that her Jews, or that that her neighbors, the Jews, did. Fascinating. Next paragraph. The Savior is satisfied. He has tested her faith in him. By the way, he just did that recently with the feeding of the 5,000. Hey, where... What, why don't you give them something to eat? Testing the faith. And he has here tested her faith and she's passed the test. By his dealings with her, he has shown that she who has been regarded as an outcast from Israel is no longer an alien, but a child. But a child. She then goes on to say, this is the only miracle that Jesus performed that we have a biblical record of in Phoenicia, and that he went there in part, I'm just reading from the next paragraph, last sentence, he wished to lead the disciples from their Jewish exclusiveness to be interested in working for others besides their own people, besides their own people. And here's the real punchline, friends. You know who your own people are? Now, this might, this might rub a few a little bit the wrong way. Your people are human beings. That's who your people are. She actually makes that point. In fact, I'll just, I'll just cut to the point here. Remember when Jesus said, um, I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and that was supposed to be, it was perceived as being dismissive of her request and her inquiry and her plea. Listen to this paragraph. Next page, 468, 403 of the original. You ready for this? The paragraph that begins, when he said, When he said, when he said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he stated the truth. And in his work for the Canaanite woman, he was, I underlined it right here. He was, he was fulfilling his commission. Whoa, 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 how? These things seem contradictory. Jesus himself says, I'm not sent except for to the, the, sheep, uh, the, 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 the sheep of the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, okay? That seems like it's off-putting. It seems like it's dismissive, right? It's reflecting, again, mirroring the prejudice of the disciples and of the Jews. So then Ellen White here says, but actually when he granted her request and when he ministered to her, actually he was fulfilling his commission? How so? Listen to this. This woman was one of the lost sheep that Israel should have. Should have. Underlined it right there. Should have. Should have. Look at what she does here. This is hermeneutical bravery, in my opinion. This is so cool. I'm going to read it all. I'm I'm going to try not to comment. He was fulfilling his commission This woman was one of the lost sheep that Israel should 
have rescued. It was their appointed work, the work which they had neglected that Christ was doing. When she says it was their appointed work, friends, that's the Abrahamic promise. God's plan, and I've said this a million times and I'll say it 10 million more, God's plan was always to give the truth not just to Israel, but through Israel. To give the sanctuary not just to Israel, but through Israel. To give the incarnation not just to Israel, but through Israel. Remind yourself that the people that initially recognized and announced the arrival, the arrival of the incarnate Christ, were wise men from the east. In every, we've already talked about Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, the very first time the word Torah is used in the book of Exodus, which is a book of Torah, a book of laws. The very first time, Exodus chapter 12, verse 49, we've quoted this, I've mentioned this at least twice before, that God says to Moses, there shall be one Torah for the native born, i.e. the Jew, the descendant of Abraham, and for the stranger that travels with you. God's vision was always inclusive. It was always global, not just blessing a parochial, genealogical, cultural, religious, special, regional group. No, 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 no. God set this group right at the convergence of all the great civilizations of old, right? The Africans and the Asians and the Europeans so that you almost couldn't get anywhere without traveling through Jerusalem, through Canaan. And there would have been exposure as began to sort of happen in little glimmers in Solomonic times, right? When, when the queen of the south came to learn, this was a little foreshadowing of what was supposed to be. But as you know, the wheels came off. But here's the larger point. Yes, the wheels come off in the Old Testament. But, and I've said this before, I'll read this sentence again and I'll make my point. Listen to this. It was their appointed work, the work which, Christ, which they had neglected that Christ was doing and look what I just wrote right here. Christ is Israel. Christ is Israel. And in his treatment of the outcasts, all different kinds of outcasts, the medical outcasts, the, the cultural outcasts, the economic outcasts, the professional outcasts, the geographical outcasts, the religious outcasts. I mean, what do you, what do you want to talk about? The gendered outcasts, right? Women. Who do we want to talk about here? Jesus purposefully, provocatively, strategically orients himself especially to these people. Why? Why, 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 why? Why? Because he didn't also want to reel in the pious Jews? No, of course he did. But they weren't willing. This is why he's withdrawn from Capernaum. See, friends, he's like any good fisherman. He's orienting himself where the fish are biting. And people who have been outcast, people who are despairing, people who have real needs will reach out in absolute desperation. Remember, that was our word a couple, wasn't that our word, desperation? Or desperate? Am I remembering right? I guess I didn't use that word. I could have used that word. Oh, the chapter on the touch of faith could have been desperation because Jairus was desperate and the bleeding woman was desperate. Friends, when people are desperate, they will reach out for a savior. When people are self-satisfied, they don't need a savior. What do I need a savior for? Amazing. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful and it's so unmistakable. Um, I've got to read this next paragraph. It's too good. This act, it begins this way. This act, the act of granting the request of the persistent Syrophoenician woman about her demon-possessed daughter, 
This act opened the minds of the disciples, not completely, but more fully to the labor that lay before them among the Gentiles. They saw a wide field of usefulness outside of Judea. They saw souls bearing sorrows unknown to those more highly favored. Oh, oh, don't miss that. Don't miss that. This is exactly what I talked about on the mission trips and my experience in those residential homes. Listen to it again. They saw souls bearing sorrows unknown to those, to those that were more highly favored. Friends, this is why we've got to get out of our bubbles. We have to get out of our economic bubbles. We have to get out of our geographical bubbles sometimes. We have to get out of our social bubbles, our religious bubbles, because there are people out in the world that are bearing burdens and sorrows that are crying out for hope. Remember that? Remember that summary of every single person's testimony? I'll read it to you again. How does it go? As she heard, hope sprang up. There are people in the world longing for hope, longing for hope, bearing burdens and sorrows that are so much greater than the internet password doesn't work. The guy at Starbucks messed up. He gave me the, I don't even know anything about coffee, so I can't, can't, I can't speak very uh, fluently about that. But, but these first world problems that we encounter, friends, there's people with real hurts. I'm not suggesting, by the way, I'm not suggesting for a moment that if you live in a first world, you also don't have real problems. And of course, of course you do. I'm not suggesting that you don't. What I'm saying is there are people out there that have problems of a more fundamental nature, right? There are people out there that are desperately hurting. And I just love that she points that out. They saw souls bearing sorrows unknown to those, to those more highly favored Continuing to read, among those whom they had been taught to despise were souls longing for help from the mighty healer, hungering for the light of truth, which had been so abundantly given to the Jews. And the backdrop for all of this, of course, is Ephesians 2, right? She alludes to the wall of partition two times in this chapter. I'll just read it here briefly. By the way, my good friend, dear friend and colleague at Lightbearers and in the gospel work, Ty Gibson is getting ready to do a six-part series on the book of Ephesians, beginning either this week or next week at Storyline. So you should tune into that. That's, uh, you just go to the YouTube channel, type in, go to YouTube, type in Storyline, it'll come up or you can get the Storyline app. And Ty's gonna do a series on the book of Ephesians. And then together, the two of us are gonna do a series where we're gonna team teach at the same time, a series through the book of Galatians, which I cannot wait. Okay, there we go. You still good? Okay. Everybody still there? Okay, so let me just read you this. Ephesians chapter two, verse 14. For he himself, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace. Now, by the way, this doesn't just mean internal peace, like meditative peace. It's also that, but it's something even more importantly. He's talking about the peace here between different kinds of people. Watch where, watch where Paul goes with this. Ephesians two fourteen. For Christ himself is our peace, who is made both one, both, both? Who's the both? Jew and Gentile, us and them, the ins and the outs, the haves and the have-nots, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition. And this is a little technical, but it's incredible. Having abolished in his own flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, Thus, again, making peace, that he might reconcile them both 
to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, the hatred. And he came and preached peace, fourth time now, to you who were afar off and to those that were near, for through him we both have access to one spirit by the Father. I mean, there's so much going on there. There is so much going on there. But the one thing I'm going to say is, it's a slightly technical theological point, and I've not done much of this. But when he says, when Paul says that he, in his own flesh, he destroyed the enmity between Jew and non-Jew, it's like, how? What does that mean that in Jesus' flesh, he killed the hatred between us and them? By the way, all different kinds of us and them. Not just Jew and Gentile, but male and female, black and white, rich and poor, this nation and that nation. All of those us and them demarcations have been destroyed in Christ. Now, not that the distinctions don't exist, but that as Christians, we no longer relate to people on the basis of those differences. Because all of those differences are subordinate to the great similarity that we have in Christ. And so back to the question, how is it? How is it that that in his flesh, Jesus destroyed the hatred between us and them? Here's the answer. Jesus was a Jew, but he was also a human. And everybody, Gentiles included, is a human. So Jesus took the two, humanity and Jewishness, and in his flesh, he was faithful to God. He kept covenant with God. And in, in his death, Paul talks about here, in his death, in his flesh, when he died, he destroyed any hatred on the basis of nationality, on the basis of race, on the basis of economics, on the basis of gender, on the basis of religion. Jesus destroyed that. Destroyed it. In fact, we're just getting to the end here. Listen to this. So she does the Ephesians 2 thing there. She does the believe, believe, believe thing, which she's been talking a lot about. Um, 469, this is the very last, this is the third to the last paragraph right at the end, or not right in the middle, actually. The spirit that built up the partition wall between Jew and Gentile is still active. Pride and prejudice have built strong walls of separation, separation between different classes of men. Pride and prejudice... Right, it's like the, the Jane Austen novel, Pride and Prejudice. It's a, it's a great novel, by the way, a great movie. Um, and interestingly, that movie is just all about judging people by externalities and not seeing who they really are. Judging people in that book, it's judging them on the basis of economics and class, right? It's, a, it's an incredibly insightful um, story, an amazing story. It's one of my wife and I's very favorite movies. Um, but the idea here is, is that you can just read somebody on the basis of like a univariate analysis. I know one thing about them. That's all I need to know. They're not a Jew. That's all I need to know. They're poor. That's all I need to know. They're black skinned. That's all I need to know. They're male. That's all I need to know. They're Christian. That's all I need to know. They're not American. That's all I need to know. No. In fact, listen to this. Go to the very last, oh, no, no. I was just gonna go to the last paragraph, but I can't do it. Second to the last paragraph. In faith, the woman of Phoenicia flung herself against the barrier that had been piled up between Jew and Gentile. That's hot. By the way, there's a cool little play here, and I don't know if you missed it. Earlier, we talked about how she did what? She cast herself at the feet of Jesus. 
Now just come with me on this little journey and tell me if you like this or you don't like this. I'm going a little long. Man, I, I gotta be done here. Okay. She's so persistent. She is so dogged in her determination that her daughter is going to be healed and this guy is the son of David and he is going to heal my daughter. She has so much faith that she throws herself, now tell me if you like this, she throws herself not just at the feet of Jesus, but with such enthusiasm and force that she actually bumps into Jesus. She comes at him with energy. Can't you see that in your mind's eye? And then now this is a very interesting metaphor, a very interesting uh, literary device that Ellen White does here in this second to the last paragraph. In faith, the woman of Phoenicia flung herself against the barriers that had been piled up between Jew and Gentile, the barriers, the walls. And Jesus himself embodied the, the destruction of those barriers. Jesus himself was fully Jewish and fully human and thus ending any empathy on the basis of race and age and gender and class and nationality, she cast herself against the barrier. I love that language there. She flung herself. She flung herself against Jesus, Jesus himself being the means by which the barrier is destroyed. I think it's a cool, cool little analogy there. I just wanted to point that out. Against discouragement, regardless of appearances that might have led her to doubt, she trusted the Savior's love. We can do the same. It is thus that Christ desires us to trust in him. The blessings of salvation are for every soul. Nothing but his own choice can prevent any man from becoming a partaker of the promise in Christ by the gospel. And then this sentence, first sentence of the last paragraph, cast is hateful to God. Cast is hateful to to God, cast. That's not a word we use very much, cast, cast. So the word cast comes from an old word. It's actually the very same word that gives us the word chaste, right? We sometimes talk about uh, in the context like a, a woman, young woman being chaste. It usually means not sexually active, right? Outside of marriage, chaste, or even a young man can be chaste. The word literally means pure. Now follow me on this. It means pure, unpolluted, uncontaminated. That's the same etymological derivation of caste. The idea that there are pure people and less pure people, God hates that. I want you to feel that in your soul right now. God hates that idea. He doesn't hate the people that hold to that ideas. Lots of people hold to those ideas. They are ridiculous. They are absurd, they are unbiblical, they are anti-gospel, they are anti-covenantal. God doesn't hate the people that hold to those ideas. There are many millions and, and hundreds of millions of them even on the planet today. But God hates the idea. This is what is meant in the scriptures over and over again when it says that God is no respecter of persons. God shows no partiality. This is just another way of saying God hates caste. God hates caste. The idea that there's a better than and a worse than a pure people and a, and a polluted people, a contaminated people, which gets back to the whole question of why, why Jesus did not care at all for the notions of ceremonial or ritual or social contamination. Because Jesus didn't buy into the idea that some group of people, by virtue of their skin tone or by virtue of their nationality or by virtue of their economics, that they had some access to purity or to piety or to chastity, 
No way. Jesus says, not at all. God hates caste. It is hateful to him. Then she says, I'll just read that last paragraph there, then we'll do the rubric quickly. He ignores everything of this character. In his sight, the souls of all men and women are of equal value. Thank the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made, and then it just quotes a bunch of great passages like uh, Acts 17 and uh, Galatians 3, which of course Galatians 3 is one of the greats. And then this line here, without distinction of age or rank or nationality or religious privilege, all are invited to come unto him and live, just like the Syrophoenician woman did. She came to Jesus. She heard the reports and hope sprang up. She heard the reports and hope sprang up. Incredible. Oh, my word, my word, my word. What was your word for the day? What was your word for this chapter? I'll be interested to see if anybody had my same word. My word is acceptance, Rambler Cat says. Great word, equality, perfect word, all. Great word, Anne-Marie. Um, another equality, all, inclusive, notorious JMW says. Maria King says all, a lot of alls here. Lesson, ooh, good one, Chris. Uh, Sharon Pies says determined, good word, humility. Deb says whosoever. Mel says equal. Music Fever 24-7 says tradition. Okay, I like it. Welcome, equal, oh, penetrate, Keith Brown, 8884, inclusive, crumbling. David, I like where you're going with that. Equality, all, hope, persistent. Okay, I like it. Some people are concentrating on the woman and her persistence. Whosoever, equal, hope, intentionality. Nobody's given my word yet. Purpose, great word. Inclusive, by the way, every one of these, so good. Invited, ooh, I like that. Saved, good stuff. Loved, of course, that's gonna be a good word all the time. Partition, inclusive. Okay, nobody's had my word yet. Family, I thought some would have it. You're kind of on to me. You're kind of on to the things that really jump out at me. But I like the fact that there are so many different words. That's one of the great things about it is that the, the message to you doesn't have to be identical to the message to me. It's resonant with the message to me, but it's not identical. Faith, favor, dispense, intentional. Okay, nobody's had my word yet. Let me just read it to you. Remember in, I'll, I'll let you know if I see it. Remember in the opening grace, good, good guess, good word. Not that it's a guess because it's your word. You're not trying to just guess mine. Inclusive. Okay, remember in the opening paragraph, she says how when Jesus was standing on the mountain, he was standing on the rise and he was looking westward to tear inside in the ancient cities. And then beyond that was the vast expanse of the Mediterranean Sea, beyond which were the capitals of the great, you know, uh, cities and nations of the larger Mediterranean world. Oh, Christian says, all are equal. Maybe yours is crumbs. Ooh, I like that, Christian. That's a poetic. I like it. It's not my word, but I do. Okay, Deb. Deb, you got my word, and I think you got my word yesterday, if I'm not mistaken, or the day before. Deb, my word is unrestricted. Unrestricted. And let me read you the sentence that I got it from. Here you go. You ready for this? It says, Afterward, when the Jews turned still more persistently from the disciples because they declared Jesus to be the savior of the world, and when the partition wall, she's talking about in the apostolic period, right, the book of Acts, because they declared Jesus to be the savior of the world, and when the partition wall between Jew and Gentile was broken down by the death of Christ, this lesson and similar ones, right, like the centurion and the Samaritan and the tax collectors, and similar ones which pointed to the gospel work unrestricted 
by custom or nationality had a powerful influence upon the representatives of Christ in directing their labors. And you know what I really like about the word unrestricted? Think of how it picks up our theme from yesterday. Think of how it picks up our theme from yesterday, right? Like, hey, um, why don't you, you know, wash your hands? And let me just, let me just go back there. The tradition, right? The Corbin thing and the, the, the contamination thing. Jesus is unrestricted. He's not behaving. He's not on a leash. He's not behaving according, according he's, he's behaving badly. He's unrestricted. He is unrestricted. Now think of how cool this is. Not only is Jesus unrestricted, but Jesus is himself the embodiment of the gospel, the good news. So what's the message here? God's good news for the world is unrestricted. It's unrestricted by race, by economics, by age, by nationality, by any of the demarcations and divisions that we use to split ourselves off from others and to be the pure, the chaste, the chosen ones. Yeah, no, all of that's hateful to God. Unrestricted. The gospel work is unrestricted. Jesus was unrestricted. He was not bowing to the preferences and protocols of first century Judaism or even the expectation of the disciples or the expectations of anybody else except God. Except God. Amazing. Unrestricted. That's my word. That's my word. I, I made my case for it. Okay, now let's just quickly do our rubric. I didn't actually write down my rubric today, which I normally do, but I was literally on the phone the very moment before I went live today. So let's just go down. What's the point of this chapter? The point of this chapter, I would say, is to describe the planting of the seed in the minds of the disciples and later the church that the gospel is not just for any one group of people, Jewish or otherwise. The gospel, the good news, the glad tidings is for the world. And this is what Ellen White says, a living illustration of that. A living illustration. Okay, that's the point. The person, what do we learn about the person? Well, that's an easy one here, right? The person of Jesus, what do we learn about him? What do we learn about God? That God is no respecter of persons. That God hates caste. The idea that people are better than and worse than, superior to and inferior to, based on immutable characteristics, things over which we have no control, like how you were born and your genetics. Nobody chose their genetics. Nobody chose their parents, right? Like, how can these be the things that recommend us to God since they have no moral connotations at all? Now, God is no respecter of persons. He loves, how does she say it there? All souls are of equal value with God. That's what we learned. Um, how about our prayer? How can we pray this chapter? I think we can pray, God, help me to be mindful. Hey, Daniel Garza, great to see you, brother. Love you, man. We can be, oh, I like what, uh, what Daryl says there. Christianity isn't racist, but Christians can be. Yeah, and I would even say air quotes. Christians can be, because a true Christian in his or her heart of hearts cannot be racist, because it's a complete violation of the whole premise upon which the gospel is built, which is that God so loved the world. Okay, so here's how I think we can pray. I think we pray like this. God... Help me to see that there are people around me that I might be inclined for whatever reason to be dismissive of. 
and help me not to be dismissive of them. Help me to go even sometimes way out of my comfort zone to talk to somebody or to minister to somebody or to assist somebody that's not in my sort of normal day-to-day routines. The last church I just pastored was a great church. It was an incredible church. I love the people in that church, the Kingscliff Church. But if I did have one little critique of them, and probably some of them are going to watch this, and they've heard me say this in sermons many times, so this is not new. Um, when they would have their potlucks and when they would get together for social gatherings, it was very often the same people. And when other people would come, when visitors would come, when new people would come, particularly sometimes those that didn't quite fit exactly the Kingscliff mold, the sort of seaside mold. Now, again, this isn't a, a, I'm not being unkind here. I'm just saying that habitually, routinely, we love the people that we love. We've had a very busy week and we want to see our friends and the people that we haven't seen all week or maybe for a couple weeks. So we just naturally, reflexively gravitate toward our tribe, our people. And I would say to them, beloved, look around the church. Some of you have been going to this church for 20 years or more. Look around the fellowship meals. Don't go magnetically to the faces that you know until you have first gone to the faces that you don't know, the people you don't know. Go to those people. Then bring them along to go with you to the people you do know. You feeling me? And so even in little social situations like that, we need to orient ourselves toward those that are out, outside. Father, help us to be those people. That's our prayer. Help us to be inclusive. Help us to be inclusive because there is no, there is no them, only us. Repeat that mantra again and again. There is no them, only in us. In the gospel, there is no them, only in us. Only in us, all candidates for the kingdom. And then finally, practice, same, same. Same, same, that's how you practice it. You just, and I see somebody saying, you know, a lot of churches are like that. Well, then you can be the difference maker. You can be the tone setter. You can be the thermostat rather than just the thermometer. Not just in your local churches, but in your neighborhoods, in your social situations, reaching out. Oh, I didn't even say anything about politics. I could have. I mean, that, especially in the United States of America right now, is maybe the greatest division between us and them, the pure and the impure. And the people that are on the hard right, they regard the people on the hard left as the impure. And the people on the hard left regard the people on the hard right as the impure. And so much of this is just political posturing. Let me just explain something to you very briefly. I was not planning on talking about this, but I'm just going to say this. There are some honest politicians out there. I do not deny that. I believe that at the local and state and even the national level, there are some honest politicians. I don't deny that. However, I want to say that I think there should be no such thing as a career politician. I might upset some people, but I, I think the idea of being a career politician, because here's what happens. When your job is to be a politician, in fact, I think there should be term limits on every single elected office. I think there should be term limits on churches elected office. I think there should be term limit on the general conference president. I think there should be term limits on senators, on presidents, on every elected office. I think there should be term limits. There should be, not, and not just like, oh, you served two years in the Senate, or you served two terms in the Senate, now you can go serve, you know, whatever indefinite terms in um, 
in the uh, uh, you know a Congress or whatever. No, I just think it should be there should be a max like ten years or something. Anyway, I'm getting a little off topic here, but the reason I say that is a high percentage of these politicians uh, they do care about something. They care deeply about something. Let me tell you what it is: keeping their job, staying in power, remaining career politicians. Now, again, I'm not not a carte blanche statement because I think there are some sincere people out there. But politics plays to the worst attributes of human nature, easily. Not, not necessarily, but easily. This is why George MacDonald famously said, it's my all-time favorite quotation with regards to politicians. He says, it is not in the nature of politics that the best of men should be elected because the best of men don't want to govern their fellow men. Exactly. So I don't want to do the same thing here myself and be hypocritical and dismissive toward politicians wholesale. No, what I'm saying is, that the political enterprise as it is presently constructed in this bipartisan system that we have causes people to make enemies out of them. And that, by the way, feeds the career politicians as long as they can keep 51% of people, not even 51% of people, 51% of voters happy, they can be completely dismissive and demonize them. And that's happening in this country and you know it. And it's happening in other places as well. I just lived in Australia for seven years. So not only race, not only nationality, not only age, not only education, not only economics, not only gender, but also ideology and politics is another way to create an us and a them. And I want to say it again. God hates all of that. Not all of them, but all of that. God loves all of them. But these ideas that there are better than and worse than, superior and inferior... Hateful to God. Anti-gospel, anti-covenant. Okay, tomorrow we're going to be, I think, in an incredible chapter titled The Foreshadowing of the Cross. Is that right? Barriers broken down. What's our next chapter? Oh, the true sign. The true sign. So tomorrow we'll be in the true sign. That's chapter 43. We're going to be past the halfway mark. Uh, I was only going to go an hour today and I went over an hour and I really didn't have the time to. So let me pray with you guys and then I will release you to the day. Sorry for that little political rant there at the end, but um, yeah, I'm a little fired up about it. And I think as, as gospel preachers, we should be fired up, not politically, but about the division, even within the body of Christ that politics is in some areas causing. And it's completely unacceptable, completely unacceptable to those of us that have a much, much much higher calling. What does the Apostle Paul say? Our citizenship is in heaven. Father in heaven, we yield ourselves to you. Help us to be inclusive, radically committed to inclusivity. Father, teach us what that looks like and teach us to not make a difference or a differentiation based on some notion of caste or purity or better than. Father, Jesus' healing of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter is such a lesson to us. It was a lesson to the disciples and it's a lesson to us. Father, we want, Jesus was unrestricted and we want the gospel in our life and in our church and in our communities to be unrestricted for the good news, the glad tidings to reach all different kinds of people, even people who have burdens and sorrows that we ourselves perhaps can scarcely imagine. Father, may the gospel do its work in the world. And Father, sometimes through the church, okay, yes, but sometimes in spite of the church. Father, if you have to work around us, work around us, but we would much prefer that you work through us. 
Father, make us the kinds of people that you can work through, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.